This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, March 31st. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Rachel Del Judas. Bev Kofdel is a team lead for the Christian aid organization Samaritan's Purse. She joins us from Cremona, Italy, about an hour and a half outside of Milan, where she is helping run a 14-tent, 68-bed respiratory care unit field hospital that Samaritan's Purse set up in the parking lot of Cremona Hospital. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, and please encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. How many in the U.S. will die because of the coronavirus? In an appearance on NBC's Today Show, Dr. Deborah Burks, a top U.S. health official advising President Trump right now, had a back and forth with NBC's Savannah Guthrie about how many Americans will die. Burke said on the high end, if we do nothing, over 2 million Americans could die. But she cautioned even with a lot of measures in place, 100,000 to 200,000 will likely die. Dr. Fauci said yesterday we could see millions of cases in this country and as many as one to 200,000 deaths. Do you agree with that analysis? Is that a worst case scenario or something that... Uh, we should prepare ourselves as potentially likely. So in the flu models, the worst case scenario is between 1.6 million and 2.2 million deaths. That's the projection if you do nothing. So we've never really done all of these things that we're doing. We put them into a model. We've looked at the Italy data with their self-isolation. And that's where we come up with if we do things together well, almost perfectly, we could get in the range of 100,000 to 200,000 fatalities. We don't even want to see wow, that. That, that. I know, but you know, you kind of take my breath away with that because what I hear you saying is that's sort of the best case scenario. If everything works and people do the things you're asking them to do, maybe you can hold the deaths to one to 200,000 in this country. Well, the best case scenario would be 100% of Americans doing precisely what is required. But we're not sure, based on the data that you're sharing from around the world and seeing these pictures, that all of America is responding in a uniform way to protect one another. So we also have to factor that in. Cities that don't social distances, that don't stay at home, that believe you can have social interactions, that believe you can have gatherings of homes of 20 and, and 10 people even, that is going to spread the virus even if everyone looks well. Parts of Florida and all of Maryland and Virginia are shut down and under stay-at-home orders to slow the spread of the coronavirus. Residents of Maryland aren't allowed to leave their homes unless it's for an essential reason, and Maryland Governor Larry Hogan said that residents who have been outside the vicinity should quarantine for 14 days. He also said he is concerned that the virus could spread to thousands of facilities in Maryland. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam's order states that the stay-at-home order is in effect until June 10th. Don't look for President Trump and House Speaker Pelosi to be singing Kumbaya anytime soon. On Fox & Friends Monday, Trump reacted harshly to Pelosi's remarks about him. But then when you see Speaker Pelosi come out and say, President Trump's denial at the beginning of this was deadly. As the president fiddles, people are dying. What's your reaction to that? 
Well, you know, it's a sad thing. Look, she's a uh, sick puppy, in my opinion. She really is. She's got a lot of problems, and that's a horrible thing to say, especially when I was the one. And, you know, I've gotten from fair people, uh, you know, a lot of accolades, and I don't want the accolades, but it, it's just in terms of a fact. Uh, when I stopped all very some very, very infected, very, very sick people, thousands coming in from China long earlier than anybody thought, including the experts, nobody thought we should do it except me, and I stopped everybody. We stopped it cold. It had never been done before in the history of our country. And Dr. Fauci said the other day, if those people came in, if, they, if I didn't do that, you would have had uh, deaths uh, like you right. have never seen before. And, you know, she doesn't mention that. And that was early. And don't forget, she was playing the impeachment game, you know, her game where she ended up looking like a fool. She was doing nothing, but all she did for the first long time was impeach. Impeach just went on for uh, years. I mean, if you think about it, that's all she did. She didn't do anything. She couldn't get bills passed. She's controlled by the radical left, by AOC plus three. And, uh, you know, to, for her to make a statement like that, I saw that. I thought it was a disgrace. I think it's a disgrace to her country, her family. I think it's, it shouldn't be. And I guess now when she says, oh, I pray for the president, I pray for the president so much. Well, I, I don't think that's true. What a statement to make. What a horrible statement to make. Congressman Mark Meadows of North Carolina resigned from Congress on Monday and is starting Tuesday as President Trump's chief of staff per Fox News, taking over Mick Mulvaney's post, who since January 2019 has been acting as the White House chief of staff, replacing General John Kelly. On March 6th, Trump tweeted, I am pleased to announce that Congressman Mark Meadows will become White House chief of staff. I have long known and worked with Mark, and the relationship is a very good one. The Daily Signal previously reported Meadows, who was first elected to Congress in 2012, was a co-founder in 2015 of the House Freedom Caucus, a group of a few dozen conservative lawmakers who had a notable impact on policy when Republicans controlled the House. In 2016, Meadows became the second chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, succeeding Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. Meadows also played an instrumental role in former House Speaker John Boehner's decision to resign. Another economic blow from COVID-19, Macy's announced it is furloughing most of its 125,000 employees who work at Macy's, Bloomingdale's, and Blue Mercury. Noting its stores had been closed since March 18th and there was no foreseeable date to reopen, Macy's said in a press release, while the digital business remains open, we have lost the majority of our sales due to the store closures. The retail company added, at least through May, furloughed colleagues who are enrolled in health benefits will continue to receive coverage with the company covering 100% of the premium. We expect to bring colleagues back on a staggered basis as business resumes. Planned Parenthood and the American Civil Liberties Union is suing Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, for stopping abortions during the coronavirus pandemic. A global pandemic is not an excuse to attack essential time-sensitive medical procedures like abortion. Alexis McGill-Johnson, acting president and CEO of Planned Parenthood Federation of America, said, following Reynolds' announcement that abortions in the state will be suspended until April 16th. Next up, we'll have Rachel's interview with a hospital aid worker on the ground in Italy. 
It is of the utmost importance to all of us here at The Daily Signal to ensure you are receiving the best information about how you and your loved ones can stay healthy during the coronavirus pandemic. Here is an important message from Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases on what to do if you think you might have COVID-19. People who are sick should stay home. You don't go to an emergency room. You don't go to a clinic. You get on the phone and you ask for advice and instructions from your physician. Then you use those instructions to determine what you're going to do. But the first reflex should not be, I feel sick, I'm going to go to an emergency room. I feel sick, I'm going to just go to a doctor's office. We need to physically separate. Ultimately, you may need, obviously, to see a physician or to go to a hospital. The first reflex should be to make a call to your physician. I'm joined on the Daily Signal podcast by Bev Koftal. She's a team lead for the Christian aid organization Samaritan's Purse. She's joining us from Cremona, Italy, where she's working in a field hospital that Samaritan's Purse set up in the parking lot of Cremona Hospital. Bev, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for having us. Well, to start off, can you just set the scene right now for what things are like in Cremona and what you're seeing on the ground? Sure. Yeah. Since, I mean, we've been here, it'll be two weeks, actually two weeks today I got here. And uh, I think the first thing uh, we did was we met with the hospital director here at the Cremona Hospital, and he just gave a count of um, just how overwhelmed they are with the cases that are here. I think if you uh, look at the numbers and the statistics for Italy, what it doesn't say is that the majority of those cases and deaths are all in the Lombardy region. And we are just south of Milan in Cremona. And their hospital, their 600-bed hospital is completely full. Um, They have a number of patients that are uh, on vents, on ventilators in the ICU. um, And over 500 beds uh, had COVID patients. And they had some beds set aside for uh, sick kids, for peds. But the majority of all the beds in there um, are COVID patients. And so uh, on the whole, here in Cremona, the, the streets are pretty quiet. Uh, police are out, and you sometimes have to show papers um, to move around. Uh, every day, probably the only sound we hear the most is ambulance um, going by, coming into the hospital. Um, so that's kind of what the scene has been here for quite a while. I mean, we're coming into this, and again, we've been here for two weeks, but the, even before that, I would say the last month, the people of Cremona have been just really dealing with this. So when someone, uh, a patient comes, is sick, needs to... Uh be part of your services and wants to enter the field hospital, what kind of things, what do they see uh, when they, you know, step on the, you know, this hospital parking lot, what, what are they greeted with? And then what does the scene look like for you as far as the field hospital goes? Right. So our field hospital is right across the street um, from the main hospital in their, in their parking lot. And so what happens is that actually the hospital in partnership with us brings patients to us. And so as we have free beds, they take people out of their hospital and put them into our hospital so they can free up more beds as they have people coming in, sometimes 50 to 60 in their emergency room just waiting to get seen. And so really what we're doing is we're alleviating a lot of that pressure off them uh, to take patients. And so we don't have patients coming out of the ambulances straight from home to us. They do go into the hospital system first. And then as we have free beds, then uh, the hospital brings patients to us. And so right now at the ICU, we have the capacity for seven vents. um, And we have 
our wards are all full. Uh, we have 28 uh, females and 28 males. And so even, even taking patients off their ward opens up new beds for them to put people in um, and to help them. And so that's been our, our biggest role, just to support them and take some of the stress off of them. So I'm sure, Bev, that no day is typical for you, but can you tell us about what you've encountered so far on various days as you and your team are serving there? Typical day, um, it changes daily, but I think the biggest consistency is just the incredible care that our patients are getting from our um, amazing staff. Our ICU nurses, our ward nurses are all caring with, uh, for patients. Um, sometimes we have people who are discharged, which is just incredible, uh, a lot of joy when that happens. And as soon as a bed is uh, open, then we take another admission in from the hospital. Um, but I, I can't tell you just how much our staff are incredible. Uh, the doctors and nurses and the operational staff that support them um, are just continually just serving the patients, praying with them, being with them, um, getting them outside to sit in the sunshine a little bit and talking with them through a translator. Uh, so that's what our days look like. It's just a lot of patient care and patient movement. How did a lot of these doctors and nurses come to uh, this project in Italy to serve in the field hospital? Are they part of this, uh, like an international response team, or did people volunteer on their own to be part of this? Um, we have a what we call a DART roster, Disaster Assistance Response Team roster, and part of that DART roster is for medical um, emergencies such as this. And so we've been able to respond with doctors and nurses who have been trained in our DART training um, to different places like our field hospital in Mosul. Um, we've, uh, we're in DRC for Ebola. Um, we were just recently after Hurricane Dorian, we set up a hospital in Freeport. And so we do have a roster of people who are specifically trained for this type of work. So how did the people of Italy, as well as Cremona Hospital, respond to your help in the outreach of Samaritan's Purse? How did you decide to end up uh, working in partnership with Cremona Hospital? We were incredibly blessed that uh, the Italian government, um, the province of Lombardy, reached out and invited us. We don't go anywhere unless we're invited. And they, they, they actually chose Cremona Hospital. And so when, we, when our advance team, myself and three others, landed here two weeks ago, uh, we met with the hospital. We landed in Milan and went straight down to Cremona and met with the hospital director. Um, so everything was set up for us. And I'm just so glad that we came here. Uh, it's just has been a really dark time for the people here. And we just want to bring some sort of hope. Um, and I believe that we've done that through our staff and just through God's goodness, um, being able to bring hope in, in a very, just a very tough situation for the people here in Cremona. So in about the two weeks or so that you've been in Cremona working at your field hospital, are there any particular stories or particular patients that have stood out to you so far during your time there? Wow, there's actually, there's quite a few when I think about it, but um, there was a, a really cute older couple that were here. She was in the female ward, he was in the male ward, and she got uh discharged a day earlier than him and he walked out to see her go and then he was able to he was able to be discharged the next day and he was so excited to be able to be reunited with his wife again um and that was just like you know it just brings it home that these people are are human and just want to be together and be with their family um today we're able to actually see one of our patients who is uh has down syndrome and has a coronavirus and being able to see him improve um, it's just a miracle of God. And we're just so thankful to see that. And so when you have these little rays of hope, 
I think it not only helps the patients, but it helps our staff. And it also helps the hospital staff. They see this and they hear the stories. And we're just praying that that would be a glimmer of hope for them. Speaking of the patients that uh, come to uh, use your services and be part of the ministry there, are they mostly older? Are they younger? You mentioned the older couple, uh, that beautiful story. What kind of age range are you seeing? Yeah, the average age that we're getting is around 66 to 70. Um, we've had had some people in their mid-50s, uh, but the majority that we are getting are over 65 for sure. And as far as I know, the doctors treat the patients that are in the field hospital, but how much interaction does your team have uh, with the patients that aren't maybe medical staff and what kind of, what other services or what other things um, do you all provide for patients other than just the medical care? What we have here is like our um, uh, staff who are operational staff. We also have some chaplains here. And so when we see the patients sitting outside, you know, through a translator, and of course, we're behind a fence, we're able to uh, ask them about them, uh, ask their names, just find out where they're from and how they're doing, ask them about their family. And it's kind of fun just to be able to sit and and listen to them. Um, It's also really sometimes heartbreaking to hear their stories. Uh, So we're also able to pray, pray with them and, and just, yeah, just be a, a, a face of, of hope, hopefully, uh, to them and so that they're not alone. A lot of patients that we're hearing, of course, with Cremona, their family can't be there around them. And so hopefully in some way we can be that family for them. You had mentioned, Bev, that there have been some heartbreaking stories. What what are some of the darker, harder things that you've seen uh, during your time in ministry so far there? I think there was one story of a lady who um, she contracted the virus and had to go to the hospital and her husband stayed home with their little dog and she found out later that he died at home by himself and authorities had to come in and like knock on the door um so she was in the hospital and didn't even know um that he had died and she said to uh to some of our staff like when she does get discharged the only thing she wants to do is go to his gravesite and see that um so that 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 was hard you know to think that she never got to see him that he died by himself and they never got to be with each other. That's a difficult, difficult story. Well, that is heartbreaking. <clears throat> How would you characterize the crisis in Italy overall, looking at everything you've seen so far, working with patients on the inside, as well as when you were coming in, when you first landed as part of the uh, advanced team, how would you characterize um, Italy as a whole? You know, they've been absolutely incredibly gracious. Um, so welcoming um you know it is not an easy time for italians here italians are relational they love to be together they love to be with friends and family and they're not allowed to do that because when they are they're getting sick um and so you can really tell it's taking its toll on this beautiful culture and country and um we've just been overwhelmed by how much they've blessed us we've had people bring baking in for the nurses we've had people um just donate things like it was colder a little uh, about a week ago and and someone donated a whole bunch of jackets for our our night shift nurses um and this is just the type of people that they are and so it's it's been incredible for our team to be able to uh uh just be with them during this time and i i really feel like there's like a solidarity together to fight the virus 
So we've seen a lot of news reports saying that there aren't enough doctors or medical equipment in Italy to treat everyone. And you alluded to that earlier in our conversation. What are you seeing? And is that continuing to be the case? Yeah, I think that's a global issue right now, uh, a global issue in the shortage of, of medical staff. Like in Italy here, I believe 55 doctors or healthcare workers have already died. Uh, they're starting to send some doctors from the south of Italy up here uh, to help with that. But, you know, in, around the world, in, the, in here in Italy, in Spain, you're hearing it, um, uh, in the U.S., uh, in the U.K., France, you're just hearing that the main two needs are uh, staffing, nurses, doctors, and also equipment. So you mentioned earlier as well, you were part of the Ebola response team in Liberia, and you also served with Samaritan's Purse there. What was that experience like? Uh, well, I mean, that was, I mean, in 2014 um, in the West Africa, yeah, I was in Liberia for the Ebola response. I mean, it was very, very difficult. Uh, that was before we had a vaccine um, or treatment. And so, of course, uh, the disease was very deadly. The death rate was incredibly high. Um, and so it was, a, it was a very, very difficult time, in all honesty. But I think that experience has helped us as Samaritan's Purse to be able to know how to respond to infectious disease. So after we did Ebola in Liberia in 2014. Uh, just this past year, we were in uh, DRC also uh, doing Ebola, and and now we're here doing uh, COVID-19. And I think every experience that we get, we just learn more and more, so that we can basically what it comes down to, we can serve our patients um, as best as possible. Given what you experienced working in the Ebola crisis and now serving in Italy combating COVID-19, how would you compare the two crises back from what you saw with Ebola and then looking now at COVID-19? Well, again, I think with Ebola uh, before the vaccine, uh, it's just that much more deadlier. It's that much more severe. Uh, it killed people very quickly and very um, traumatically, in all honesty. Uh, and so, of course, your death rate was very, very high for the amount of infections. Um, here with COVID, it spreads a lot uh, faster, uh, but it's not as deadly. And there's a specific, I would say there is a, an age group that is more susceptible, the older age group where Ebola, it, it affected everyone. There wasn't anyone that was um, kind of immune to that. Uh, obviously we are seeing some cases of younger people now with getting COVID. Uh, there's lots of things that are factors into that, um, underlying medical issues, asthma, whatever else. Uh, but on the whole, I, I believe still the numbers are close to 80% of all patients are over 60. Um, where Ebola, you had an array of all kinds of different patients from babies all the way up. Um, and again, Ebola is, is a little bit harder to get for sure, but it's much more deadlier. Um, but, you know, through that 2014 Ebola crisis, the outcome of that was uh, therapeutics to treat Ebola, but also a vaccine. And so I think that's really changed the face of being able to um, react and deal with Ebola, which is great. So obviously that is our prayer that there would be a vaccine for COVID-19 uh, to help, uh, you know, if this ever comes up um, again, and we hope it doesn't. Well, Samaritan's Purse has been really busy. I just saw, I think it was last night, you all are opening a field hospital in New York City in that area. And I'm curious, have you heard anything from teammates? I know you're in two different countries right now, but on what they're seeing uh, in New York City at the moment. Yeah, I think they are, uh, like when we came to Italy, um, we came right in the middle of the crisis. And uh, the team lead on in New York City, they're building uh, and almost done, actually, a mirror copy of what we have here in Italy, 68 beds 
And they said that they've probably arrived a week or two before it gets really, really bad. So in that way, it's really good that we're there so that we can fully prepare and get ready. They're partnering with Mount Sinai Hospital, um, and they're in, uh, I believe, uh, Central Park. They've had incredible help from everyone, uh, from the New York Police Department and other one, other people, uh, Mount Sinai staff. Um, and so we're just happy to be able to, you know, be the the hands and feet of Jesus and go and help people during this time. It's a it's unprecedented that we would think that we'd be doing a response like this in Italy in Central Park, uh, in New York. Uh, we usually are in countries that are very different than this, um, but our teams are adaptable, they're flexible, and, and again, we, we go where we're needed. How long, Bev, are your days as well as your uh, teammates, the different medical workers that you're serving with, and how well are you staying uh, rejuvenated, I'm sure, on very long, very full days right now that you're undergoing? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're a 24-7 um, operation here. Our nurses work 12-hour shifts, 7 to 7, much like the nurses in, in uh, North America. Our operations teams are here. Uh, we have people on call at night. Yeah, it is long days, uh, but many of us, this is what we do, and so we kind of get into a groove. And and to us, it's um, it's worth it. Uh, we get the opportunity to pray with people, to share about Christ and how God loves them, um, and we get to serve other people and be together as a team doing that. Uh, we do try to get into a rhythm where we can take maybe half days off and um, as team lead, that's something that I'm very aware of, making sure my team has uh, some rest now and then. Um, so we're getting into that rhythm as we get some staff and get our schedules down. As you've been uh, working and serving there now for about two weeks, what would you say has been uh, the biggest challenge or the hardest thing about what you all are doing and what's been uh, one of the most beautiful things? What's been one of the biggest blessings as well? I would say the hardest thing is just knowing that this thing isn't going anywhere for a while and you know it's not a sprint it's a marathon and so in knowing best how to just pray for strength for that um, and how we can continue to support the hospital here in Cremona but I also would say that the the highlight and the blessing of being here is the people that we've met uh, the patients the hospital staff at Cremona uh, the vendors who come and help us um, the air force who came and helped uh, set up our tents and allowed us to land our DC-8 in Verona at their Air Force base. Things like that. Just the people of Italy have been an incredible blessing. And that's something that I don't think our team will ever forget. Well, as we wrap up, I just wanted to ask if there's any more personal stories that you'd like to share. I know you mentioned the one about the uh, person with Down syndrome that's recovering. You also mentioned the story of the elderly couple. So if there's any other personal stories that you'd like to highlight, and then as well as just uh, talk about how patients have responded as they uh, recover and leave, what is their message to you guys or what are you hearing from these patients as they leave? There was one other patient, a nurse who was about to retire. I think she was two weeks away from retiring and she got sick along with five of her coworkers. And so she's been able to recover here and is doing a lot better. Um, and just hearing her stories from working in the hospital before she got sick was just really humbling. And when people are discharged or we hear from families, uh, they're just incredibly thankful. Uh, we've had people like just break down in tears. Uh, we've gone to our vendors to pick up whatever it may be, supplies, and they know who we are, and they're like in tears thanking us. And so just an incredible amount of gratitude, and I would say it's reciprocal. Not only are they grateful for what we're doing here, but we're incredibly grateful to be able to serve them. 
And Bev, lastly, if there's people that want to somehow help either here in the United States or elsewhere, how would you encourage them to do that? I would encourage them to go to our Samaritan's Purse uh, website. Prayers, just any resources that are, uh, they want to um, donate will be uh, given to our response here, both in Italy and in New York. And, you know, we just want to let people know just how thankful we are for that. Uh, we are so blessed by people who are helping us be here so that we can help other people. Well, Bev, thank you so much for making time to talk with us about the amazing work you're doing uh, at the field hospital in Cremona, Italy, that Samaritan's Purse set up. It's an honor to have you on with us. Great. Thank you so much. And uh, please be safe. Thank you, Bev. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. We do appreciate your patience as we record remotely during these weeks. Please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and please leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts to give us your feedback. Stay healthy, and we'll be back with you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Thalia Rampersad, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.